What's behind my bastards? Hello, fellow fan of Robert Evans. I am BZ Douglas, and thanks for hopping into my podcast feed. I am jumping in front of the actual content that you crave for a real quick plug that I hope you won't 30 seconds skip. About a year and a half after interviewing Robert and rebroadcasting this, his audiobook, I decided to become a journalist myself. This was back in June of 2020, and you can find my work since then at bzdouglas.substack.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at bzdug. The big reason I wanted to jump in here real quick is to let you know that this month I released a new documentary series called State of Injustice. It focuses on exposing systemic abuses by the Ohio police, starting with the city of Euclid. You can think of it as a behind the bastards of Buckeye State law enforcement. This project is executive produced by Black Lives Matter Cleveland, who is wholly separated from the BLM Global Network and their nonsense and actually does meaningful work. And we have a crowdfunding campaign for the pilot season that ends on March 24th. You can watch the first two episodes and learn all about the series and the project that we're trying to do at stateofinjustice.com. Thank you so much for listening. And now, on with the show that you actually came for. The War on Everyone, an audiobook by Robert Evans. Chapter 1, The Eternal Fascist. On November 9th and 10th, 1938, Nazi stormtroopers and party members took to the streets of cities throughout Germany. They burned synagogues, shattered the windows of Jewish-owned buildings, beat and murdered hundreds upon hundreds of Jewish people in the streets. This bloody pogrom is known to history as Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass. It's one of those moments in history so shocking and brutal that it's become stained into our collective consciousness, a single moment of horror forever printed on the human psyche. Adolf Hitler and the other members of the Nazi High Command considered Kristallnacht to be a failure. Rather than being enthused by the violence, the German people were horrified by this outpouring of brutality. World media harshly condemned Hitler's regime, and from their plush offices in Berlin, the Fuhrer and his inner circle began to revise their plans for how to sell anti-Semitic brutality to der Volk. Joseph Goebbels decided that film was the right medium to help crack this nut. His efforts culminated in the 1940 production The Eternal Jew. The essential through-line of this particularly vile piece of propaganda was the idea that Jewish people were an age-old parasitic force, leeching off their host nations and almost habitually working to undermine and destabilize them. As with most pieces of vile racist propaganda, the eternal Jew reveals more about the men who made it than it does about Judaism. There is no eternal Jew. But there might be an eternal fascist. Umberto Eco was probably the first person to really grasp this idea and try to define it in a scholarly way. His 1995 essay, Ur Fascism, is still one of the single finest pieces of writing on the subject. Eco was an Italian novelist, a literary critic, and a professor. He was born into fascist Italy. In 1942, at the age of 10, he won an award in a provincial competition for young fascists when he gave an elaborately positive answer to the question, should we die for the glory of Mussolini and the immortal destiny of Italy? Echo came to hate fascism, of course, and loved the partisans and rebels who fought back against Benito Mussolini's regime. As he grew older and began to analyze his world and the history behind the war that had torn apart his childhood, Echo found himself drawn again and again to the question, what is a fascist? 
That's not an easy question to answer. Most dictionary definitions you will find of the word fascism leave rather a lot to be desired. Here's Merriam-Webster's definition. Quote, A political philosophy, movement, or regime such as that of the fascisti that exalts the nation and often race above the individual and that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation, and forcible suppression of opposition. Now, that definition seems decent enough on its surface, but you could apply the bulk of it to the USSR, or Mao's China, or Saddam Hussein's Iraq for that matter. Now, that may not seem like a problem to you. After all, Hitler and Mao and Stalin and Saddam were all piece-of-shit dictators who did horrible things to their people. But there is a reason fascism is more than just a system that brings about dictators. Fascism arises out of, and murders, vibrant democracies. As such, it only comes to power with the enthusiastic consent of the people. Umberto Eco understood the singular nature of fascism. He also understood that when it reappeared in the future, it would come in different guises than the ones it had popped up in all around Europe in the 1920s and 30s. He wrote, I think it is possible to outline a list of features that are typical of what I would like to call ur-fascism or eternal fascism. These features cannot be organized into a system. Many of them contradict each other and are also typical of other kinds of despotism or fanaticism, but it is enough that one of them be present to allow fascism to coagulate around it. Echo's concept of eternal fascism started with a cult of tradition, the belief that, quote, truth has already been spelled out once and for all, and we can only keep interpreting its obscure message. Now, you might translate this to conservatism, which doesn't mean that conservatives are all fascists, just that fascism gestates within conservative movements. Next, according to Echo, is a rejection of modernism, particularly a rejection of modern depravity. As traditionally marginalized and oppressed groups stand up for their human rights in modern societies, fascists inevitably seek to reverse these trends. The first books the Nazis burned were Magnus Hirschfeld's Library of Research on Transgender Individuals. Hatred of trans men and women is still a central unifying tenet of modern fascists. Then there is the cult of action for action's sake, expressed as a worship of the soldier, of the man with a gun in his hand, willing to do violence at a moment's notice. For fascists, according to Echo, thinking is a form of emasculation. Echo also recognized a rejection of criticism and disagreement as central aspects of fascism. The critical spirit makes distinctions, and to distinguish is a sign of modernism, he wrote. It's worth noting that 8chan's poll board, one of the largest gathering places for neo-Nazis on the internet, the community that spawned both the Christchurch massacre and the Poway synagogue shooting, formed as a direct result of Gamergate. Gamergate was a reactionary movement inspired by rage at female video game reviewers who had started to critique what they saw as artistic shortcomings of popular video games. Before too long, Gamergaters took to harassing and threatening to murder these reviewers, which got them kicked off of 4chan and sent them scurrying to 8chan. Once again, Echo hit the nail on the head. Racism and hatred of diversity, exploitation of the natural fear of difference, these are other characteristics of ur-fascism. Echo recognized it as derived from social frustration, generally rising out of an, quote, appeal to a frustrated middle class, a class suffering from economic crisis or feelings of political humiliation, and frightened by the pressure of lower social groups. Ur-fascism promises its followers a social identity, and the kind of false equality that comes from belonging to a nation and to people that are set above all the other nations and peoples of this earth. Fascism also requires an absolute rejection of pacifism. 
Life is lived for struggle. War is permanent. We see this translated in our modern fascist movements in an obsession with the tools and aesthetics of war, black and camo and tactical everything. Earlier on the day I wrote this, I was browsing Twitter and I came across a post of someone's bug out bag. He wrote, how's this for a bug up boogaloo setup? If you aren't aware, boogaloo is a right-wing term for the civil war that many in that corner of the populace believe is coming, as in Civil War II electric boogaloo. This guy's emergency preparedness kit contained no food, no water, no medical supplies. His gas mask had no actual filters and seemed to be only for aesthetics. But he did have an AR-15 rifle, a 12-gauge shotgun, a Glock sidearm with a 30-round magazine, and a 44 Magnum revolver, along with a tomahawk, a throwing knife, and stylish green body armor the exact same shade as his tactical backpack. Seeing this post brought to mind what Echo wrote about the fascist Armageddon complex. Quote, since enemies have to be defeated, there must be a final battle, after which the movement will have control of the world. But such a final solution implies a further era of peace, a golden age, which contradicts the principle of permanent war. No fascist leader has ever succeeded in solving this predicament. Umberto Eco goes on to name contempt for the weak, the cult of the hero, machismo, and a sense of contempt for women and femininity as other key aspects of incipient fascism. For a fascist movement to evolve, a number of these things must coalesce together, generally around the personality of a single charismatic man with dreams of power. This man will, of course, never admit to desiring power. Instead, he claims to speak for some broad mass of the population, a claimed majority that stands behind him and his movement. Eco called this qualitative populism, and noted that in the modern era, quote, we no longer need the Piazza Venezia in Rome or the Nuremberg Stadium. There is in our future a TV or internet populism in which the emotional response of a selected group of citizens can be presented and accepted as the voice of the people. Umberto Eco was not wrong, but he didn't miss something. And since y'all are listening to my audiobook, I hope you'll forgive my arrogance in adding one new element of fascism to Echo's list. Fascism often wraps itself in irony and humor as a way to disguise its true intentions as black comedy and test the waters for its most extreme goals. If you're someone who's paid attention to the rise of fascism on the internet, if you followed my work on 8chan or read much about the alt-right, you understand what I'm getting at. But you probably view this as a rather new wrinkle in the history of fascism. The truth is that it goes all the way back to the beginning. If you want a picture of the personality of the Fuhrer, of what he was like on a day-to-day -day basis with the people he liked and trusted, Hitler's table talk is about the best resource that exists. Starting in 1941, Martin Bormann, Hitler's secretary, convinced his boss to allow a series of aides to transcribe his private conversations for posterity. Some of these were the traditional Hitler ranting monologues you'd expect. Others were just, you know, chats between courses during dinners. There's a lot of debate as to how truly off-the-cuff any of these were, but Hitler's table talk is generally regarded as an incredibly useful resource for understanding the minds of top Nazis. In his 1998 book, Explaining Hitler, journalist and historian Ron Rosenbaum turned to the table talk record several times in his attempt to understand, in essence, how bouncing baby Adolf turned into the genocidal warlord we all know and hate. He focuses on one passage in particular. Quote, the passage in which Hitler, Himmler, and Heydrich are ostentatiously debunking the rumor, which they know to be true, that the Jews are being exterminated. It's silly that people should say such things, Hitler piously avers, when we're only parking the Jews in the marshy parts of Russia. Although he adds that if it were true, it would be no less than the Jews deserved. 
It seemed to me to be a transparent charade in which the three architects of the final solution were becoming the first Holocaust deniers, the first revisionists, so to speak, and doing so in a particularly repulsive, winking, and nodding way. Rosenbaum brought his theory to another scholar, a fellow named Lang, who agreed that this was probably evidence of Hitler and company concealing their crimes via humor, both to keep explicit discussion out of the historic record and so that those in the know could laughingly revel in their crapulence. Lang said, The inventiveness seems to me in some ways really to come to the heart of the matter, even though it's subtler than the brutality. Primo Levi used the phrase needless violence, which is not quite what I'm saying. It's the element of gratuitousness, but it's more than gratuitousness. There seems to be this imaginative protraction, elaboration that one finds best exemplified in art forms, and which in art we usually take to be indicative of a consciousness, an artistic consciousness, of an overall design. For Nazis and their modern descendants, shittiness is a form of art. It's never enough to gain power, or even to hurt or kill your rivals. These people's ultimate goal is to shift the nature of reality itself to be further in line with their own narcissistic beliefs. Irony is a powerful tool for achieving that. Lang goes on. Brutality is straightforward. It's not imaginative. This isn't just brute strength. It seems to me that there is a sense of irony constantly. The sign over the entrance gate to Auschwitz, you know, Arbeit macht frei. Work will make you free. It's like a joke. It is a joke. The orchestra playing as these people go out to work. Hitler's sense of humor is not something we talk about much, but perhaps we should. Ironic humor was used regularly by the incipient Fuhrer during his rise to power. In August of 1920, during one of his early speeches, Hitler told an audience he supported removal of the Jews from our nation, not because we would begrudge them their existence, we congratulate the rest of the world on their company, this line was met with widespread laughter, but because the existence of our own nation is a thousand times more important to us than that of an alien race. Lucy DeWittowitz, a Holocaust scholar who brought that speech to Rosenbaum's attention, believed that the joke and the thing Hitler's audience was laughing at was not the line, we congratulate the rest of the world on their company, but the earlier line, we do not begrudge them their existence. I'm going to quote again from explaining Hitler. This, DeWittowitz suggests, is an inside joke for party members who know the secret meaning. They do, in fact, begrudge. They are dedicated to eradicating the Jews' existence. Reading this quote brought to mind a post I found on 8chan's poll board during one of my regular sessions browsing that image board in between mass shootings carried out by its members. In one thread, I found Anons discussing the value of comedic memes about mass killing as a way to camouflage their very real efforts to inspire more massacres. One of them typed, The best thing about this is that they will never be able to discern an ironic tongue-in-cheek frog poster from a man of action like Tarrant or Bowers. We have all the plausible deniability in the world, and unless they are going to start locking people up for shitposting, we have nothing to fear. In the decades since Adolf Hitler shot himself in his bunker, ironic racist humor has been one of the through lines connecting every Nazi and fascist movement that's arisen around the world. George Lincoln Rockwell, the founding father of American Nazism, had his minions dress up in racist guerrilla costumes to interrupt events and distract attention from civil rights activists. The main weakness of Rockwell's humor was that it was far too overt and hateful to be viewed as ironic by most Americans. But down through the years, his descendants have gotten much better at straddling the fine line between dog-whistling to people in the know and maintaining plausible deniability. One good example would be Count Dankula, a failed UK political candidate who first achieved notoriety for a video in which he trained his dog to Sieg Heil. When he was fined for this, he was able to frame himself as a free speech crusader and raise thousands of dollars while claiming to fight back against political correctness. 
There is tremendous power in humor. It's why satirists and comedians are some of the first people purged by any dictatorial regime. It's why nothing is more important to fascists than to look powerful and serious. Getting hit by a milkshake is worse for a Nazi than getting hit by a brick. Blood looks cool. Milkshakes look like milkshakes. But humor also has an incredible ability to act as a sort of ideological Trojan horse, allowing ideas to sneak into someone's mind, cloaked as jokes. Actual fascists know this. It's why the Nazis on 8chan spend so much time crafting memes to spread their ideas. But this process can take place even within the head of an individual fascist. In 2016, Joe Cox, a member of parliament for the Labor Party, was shot and stabbed to death by a fascist terrorist named Thomas Mayer. Mayer's chief stated influence was an earlier British fascist terrorist, David Copeland. Back in the year 2000, Copeland killed three people and injured many more by setting off a series of nail bombs. He picked the locations he bombed because they had a high black and Asian population. According to The Guardian, quote, He came up with the idea when a bomb went off in Centennial Park during the Olympic Games in Atlanta four years ago. He told the police that the Notting Hill Carnival was on at about the same time, said Mr. Sweeney. He began to wish that someone would blow up the Notting Hill Carnival. To start off, he treated the thought as a joke, but he could not get it out of his head. The thought became stronger. He woke up one day and decided he was going to do it. Last year, I carried out a study for the journalistic collective Bellingcat. I combed through hundreds of online conversations between fascist activists who planned the first deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. My goal was to find out how these men had been red-pilled or converted to their extremist beliefs. Over and over again, these fascists mentioned the influence ironic jokes had had on their ideological evolution. One conversation stands out to me in particular. In it, one fascist recalled how his first red pill came during an argument over an anti-Semitic joke he saw posted to Facebook. The joke spawned an argument and, quote, Then I saw people negging Jews, so I joined in as a meme first off. Then, all of a sudden, it stopped being a meme. Much of the war on everyone will discuss moments in the history of the American fascist movement that are much bloodier and much less silly than the shit posters on the internet. We will talk about hard-bitten militiamen, vicious acts of terrorism, and methodical plans of genocide that are everything but ironic. When we talk about the original Nazi party, or George Lincoln Rockwell, the American militia movement that culminated in the Oklahoma City bombing, or today's meme-spouting ironic fascists, it's easy to look at these things as separate, discrete problems, sprouting up at different times and inspired by different causes. I think that's as wrong as looking at men like Timothy McVeigh or Brenton Tarrant as lone wolves. Each swell and surge of fascism across the world and across time is more like the eruption of a cold sore. The underlying cause is a virus that is ever-present. During World War II, we bombed it into submission. For a while. But like the herpes virus, it never quite went away. It continued to lurk underneath the surface, hiding in off-color jokes at bars, hand-printed magazines, and eventually internet forums, until our national immune system grew weak enough for it to flare up once more. It's anyone's guess what happens next. Chapter 2. An American Fascist Faith At 9.50 a.m. on October 27, 2018, Robert Bowers entered the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He carried a Colt AR-15, three Glock handguns chambered in 357 SIG, body armor, and a substantial amount of ammunition. Bowers proceeded to open fire during a Shabbos morning service. He killed 11 of the 75 people worshipping at the synagogue that morning. In the hours and days that followed, journalists and researchers in the countering violent extremism community began to dig into Mr. Bowers' social media presence and internet footprint. If you read or listened to any coverage about this, it probably focused on his use of the social media website Gab, which is essentially Twitter for Nazis. 
Gab earned a lot of attention because it's where Bowers chose to announce his attack and his belief that a Jewish conspiracy was responsible for flooding the United States with non-white migrant invaders. But Bowers said other things on Gab, stranger things. In various posts, he claimed that people of Anglo-European descent were the chosen people and that Jews were their ancient enemy. He warned his fellow racists that a coming false flag attack would be, quote, one of the final desperate attempts by the Jewish international oligarchy to maintain power in the face of collapsing public trust in the media, which he believes they control. On the profile page for his account, Bowers included a quote, Jews are the children of Satan. A little more than two weeks before his rampage, he reposted a link to the Wikipedia page for Christian identity and wrote, if the Jews hate it, then it must be the truth. If you haven't heard about Christian identity, don't worry, neither had I before Bowers rent on his rampage. And this is where I give a shout out to my friend, Sarah. She's a CVE researcher who made damn sure I got learned up about this topic before I started the process of writing this book. Christian identity is not a widely known belief system in modern America. The vast majority of the people who've been influenced by it have probably never actually heard the term. It's been around so long and embedded itself so deeply in the consciousness of the far right that it's woven itself into the DNA of American fascism. It did not, however, begin in America. The origin of Christian identity traces back to Britain in 1791, when crazy person and retired Navy man Richard Brothers started having visions. Rather than writing them off as the result of bad canned sardines or ergot poisoned bread, he decided that these visions were God telling him he had to lead the Jews back to Palestine. He also decided he was a descendant of the biblical King David. Revelation followed revelation, as they so often do for people with these particular sorts of illnesses, and by the time Richard Brothers was done, he'd concluded that the majority of Jewish people were actually hidden in Britain. This hidden Israel, as he called it, became one of the central tenets of British Israelism. Brothers was eventually declared insane, which is probably fair. He was stuck in an institution from 1795 to 1806. But in the four years before he got locked up, he earned himself some followers. And although his flock didn't stick together until he got out of crazy people jail, some of his ideas persisted for years amongst the fringes of British society. In 1840, a writer named John Wilson wrote Lectures on Our Israelitish Origin and began lecturing across England and Ireland about the theory that the real Jews were basically everybody but Jewish people. According to the book Religion and the Right by Michael Barkin, quote, The lectures depended less on the interpretation of biblical prophecy than on Williams's attempt to demonstrate empirically that the lost tribes had in fact migrated from the Near East to Europe. Like many writers after him, one of his favorite techniques was to look for words in different languages that sounded the same, assuming, usually erroneously, that if the sounds were similar, then the languages and their speakers had to be connected. Since similar sounds often crop up in otherwise unrelated languages, they allowed Wilson to claim and to believe that he had proved, quote, many of our most common English words and names of familiar objects are almost pure Hebrew. Now, I find this part particularly interesting because it's a tactic still used by charlatans of many stripes today to make lurid claims about ancient aliens influencing cultures based on the fact that multiple languages have some words that sound sort of similar. Terrible minds think alike. Anyway, British Israelism continued to evolve. A guy named Hein added the assertion that Germans were really Assyrians because apparently those people had gotten lost too and wound up in Europe somehow. Hein claimed that the United States was also full of Israelites. Now, at this point in the history of British Israelism, actual Jewish people were not seen as bad guys. 
they were considered part of a greater all Israel, which was made up of the house of Israel, which was Europe, and the house of Judah, which is the people that we would actually consider Jewish. There was no evidence for any of this, uh, but nonsense and mental illness, but that's never stopped an idea from taking off. A fellow named Joseph Wilde was the first American British Israelite. Or, if he wasn't the first, he's the first guy who tried to popularize it here that we have any record of. Wilde was a pastor at the Union Congregational Church in Brooklyn. At this point, the, uh, theory, or whatever you call it, was fundamentally pretty harmless. But as it drifted across the United States, from the frigid east to the also-frigid northwest, something funny happened. British Israelism turned racist as fuck. The man most responsible for this turn seems to have been, appropriately enough, an Oregonian, Reuben H. Sawyer. In the late 19-teens, he started writing for a monthly magazine, The Watchman of Israel, which was dedicated to the idea that, quote, the English-speaking peoples of today are the lineal descendants of the lost ten tribes of Israel and must fulfill in these latter days the responsibilities decreed for them through the patriarchs and prophets. Reuben was the pastor of the Eastside Christian Church in Portland, Oregon, and over the years he built up a sizable British-Israel group in the City of Roses. In fact, he was so successful at this that he left his job as a pastor in 1921 to lecture and write about British-Israelism full-time. Well, not quite full-time. He did have another side gig, as a member of the Oregon Ku Klux Klan. If you listen to any of my episodes of Behind the Bastards on the origins of the KKK, you know that the early 1920s were a massive boom period for America's most famous racist organization. Reuben was big into the Klan for several years. In fact, he helped sell his fellow Portlanders on it, addressing 6,000 of them on December 22, 1921 at the Municipal Auditorium. He told them the KKK sought, quote, a cleansed and purified Americanism where law-abiding citizens will be respected and their rights defended, irrespective of race, religion, or color, so long as they make an honest effort to be Americans and Americans only. Now, at that point, what he's saying wasn't totally bullshit. The 20s Klan was more of a pyramid scheme than a terrorist organization. It was racist, but not more racist than mainstream American society, at least not when it came to skin color. The KKK was more racist than mainstream America about some things, though. They hated Catholics, the foreign-born, Asians, and, of course, Jews. This presented an issue for Reuben Sawyer. British Israelism loved the Jews. But over time, and exposure to the other anti-Semites in the Klan, Reuben radicalized. In his first speech about the Klan, he'd brought up the Jewish question, but made a point of noting that some Jews were of an ancient and honorable faith, while only some were objectionable. According to Religion and the Right, quote, By 1922, however, this innuendo had been replaced by full-blown anti-Semitism that was as crude as it was open. Jews are either Bolshevists undermining our government or are Shylocks in finance or commerce who gain control and command Christians as borrowers or employers. It is repugnant to a true American to be bossed by a Sheeny. In some parts of America, the kikes are so thick that a white man can hardly find room to walk on the sidewalk. And where they are so thick, it is Bolshevism they are talking. Bolshevism and revolution. The transformation is so startling that one wonders at first if it is the same person speaking. The key lies in the distinction Sawyer had begun to make in 1921 between authentic and inauthentic Jews, the former ill-treated and in need of protection, the latter masquerading as genuine members of all Israel, even as they plotted the destruction of Christendom. Reuben became a major force for pushing his fellow American British Israelites towards anti-Semitism. In the early and mid-1920s, the Dearborn Independent, the newspaper funded by Henry Ford, began pushing an even more extreme anti-Semitic ideas on the wider American public. Its editor, William Cameron, was a British Israelite. 
Thanks to people like Reuben and Cameron, the category of good Jews shrank every year, and the dangers of the bad ones expanded to something resembling the all-encompassing anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that set Robert Bowers off on his rampage. From the late 1920s to the 1930s, Howard Rand, a British Israelite from New England, became a thought leader in the movement. His goal was to build it into a political organization. In 1933, he formed the Anglo-Saxon Federation of America, which claimed that actual Jewish people were not, in fact, descended from Judah. By the late 1930s, Rand's ideas had evolved to the point where he began to claim that Jewish people were literally the children of the devil. If you're curious about how this went down, here's an explanation from the website of a modern Christian identity group. Quote, Most that call themselves Jews today are in fact the race of Lucifer through his son Cain. Cain was inherently evil from the beginning because he was of Lucifer's seed. Eve was beguiled by Lucifer and did, in the carnal sense, lay with him and begot Cain. It was a pear on the ground, not an apple on a tree. Eve was deceived by Lucifer and was led to believe that she was laying with Yahweh God. Rand was the first person to use the term Christian identity, and his thinking had a huge impact on William Dudley Pelley, the founder of the American fascist Silver Shirts movement, who I also talk about on an episode of Behind the Bastards. By the 1940s, the core of the Christian identity belief system was more or less formed. It includes three specific ideas. Number one, Aryans are descendants of the biblical tribes of Israel. Number two, real Jews are the result of the devil having sex with Eve in the Garden of Eden. And, number three, the apocalypse is nigh, and when it comes, Aryans will have to go toe-to-toe with the worldwide Jewish conspiracy in order to save the world. When he walked into the Tree of Life synagogue on that cold October morning, Robert Bauer saw himself as a soldier, taking part in this great battle. Hart and his Christian identity followers had to be careful during World War II, since their belief system was essentially just Nazism without swastikas. But that did not stop him from railing against FDR's appointment of the first Jewish Supreme Court Justice, Felix Frankfurter. It also didn't stop him from opposing the admission of Jewish refugees into the United States after 1938. Hart's specific beliefs were always fringe, but they bled over into the mainstream American right wing due to the right's obsessive fear of socialism. I'd like to quote next from a great tablet magazine article, The Bloody History of America's Christian Identity Movement. Quote, the broader concern of Hart and his allies and the respectable wing of anti-Semitism, liberal journalist Kerry McWilliams called them the armchair anti-Semites of the right, was that liberal and socialist Jews were ultimately behind the hated New Deal and the corresponding transformations in American society. These armchair anti-Semites believed that admitting Holocaust survivors into the United States after World War II would be the first step in dismantling the Immigration Act of 1924 to preserve the racial character of America. American Jews, many of whom supported easing immigration restrictions broadly, were the boogeymen of the nativist right, and since right-wing nativists also often subscribed to Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy theories, opposing immigration was a way to strike a blow against communism as well as Judaism, and to preserve the white Christian character of the United States. From the beginning, Christian identity connected more with the dark and violent chunks of the far right than mainstream conservatism. This started with the Silver Shirts and the KKK, and continued into 1964, when this peculiarly American fascist cult met George Lincoln Rockwell. If you haven't, I'd recommend listening to the three-part episode of my podcast, Behind the Bastards, where I talk about George Lincoln Rockwell. The first two episodes of that cover his life and career in detail, but just so we're all caught up, I'll summarize his life here. Rockwell was the founder of the American Nazi Party, not much more than a decade after World War II ended. He was the first post-war Holocaust denier, the first fascist to make money by lecturing at American colleges and provoking fights with anti-fascists. He invented the term white power and was basically the Johnny Appleseed of the modern fascist movement. 
Rockwell was an original thinker, a pioneer of the tactics that fashy folks still use today to get media coverage and play the victim. But he came into the game early enough that he never quite figured out how to hide his power level, which is a term modern fascists use for hiding their beliefs as garden-variety conservatism. Rockwell was initially somewhat anti-Christian because, you know, Jesus was Jewish, which is something that didn't exactly play well with 1960s conservatives. In 1964, though, he met with Wesley Swift, the leader of the Christian Identity Church. Rockwell instantly realized what an opportunity Christian identity represented for Nazis in America. As it stood at that point, the party, and as a result all American fascism, was basically just a cheap ripoff of German fascism. This was good for triggering Jewish war veterans and civil rights activists, but it didn't click with regular Americans in a way that would allow it to spread. American fascism needed a spiritual core, something esoteric, a little occult, and thoroughly American. Whenever it arises in the world, fascism takes pieces of different spiritual traditions and hammers them together around its central authoritarian framework. This is part of what allows it to spread in different cultures. Umberto Eco identified this trait as syncretism. Quote, the Nazi gnosis was nourished by traditionalist syncretistic occult elements. The most influential theoretical source of the theories of the new Italian rite, Julius Evola, merged the Holy Grail with the protocols of the elders of Zion, alchemy with the Holy Roman and Germanic Empire. If you browse the shelves that, in American bookstores, are labeled as New Age, you can find there even St. Augustine, who, as far as I know, was not a fascist. But combining St. Augustine and Stonehenge, that is a symptom of Ur-Fascism. Obviously, Echo didn't write his essay until 30 years after Rockwell's death, but GLR was such a natural fascist, such an instinctive Fuhrer type, that he instantly knew grafting Christian identity onto American Nazism was going to be critical. He appointed Ralph Forbes, head of the California branch of the Nazi party, to be the party Christian identity minister. For Race and Nation, my favorite Rockwell biography, says this about Forbes. His strident racial views, his flair for the dramatic, and his loyalty to Rockwell made Forbes the perfect man for the job. California was an ideal location. There were numerous identity ministries successfully operating there. Forbes would be the first Nazi officer to preside over a flock. By fusing Christian identity and national socialism, Rockwell hoped to maximize the synergies of the groups and broaden the potential membership for each group. Nazis could find religious justification and legitimization in the church. Identity members could find political expression for their ideology in the ANP. A riot could now be expressed as religion under the guise of the identity church. The push was on within the party to legitimize the cause, to de-emphasize Nazism, and push racial issues to the forefront. Racial issues could be easily exploited, because they preyed upon the nativist fears of the white population. Thankfully for all of us, Rockwell was assassinated by one of his own men on August 25, 1967. We'll talk about what happened to the American Nazi party after his death in more detail in the next chapter. Right now, what's important is that Rockwell's marriage of American Nazism with Christian identity took. It spread throughout the fascist right. Richard Butler, the reverend who founded the Aryan Nations compound in Idaho, was a Christian identity believer. Throughout the 1980s and 90s, the Aryan Nations acted as one of the linchpins of American fascism, a place where every kind of violent right-wing extremist would gather and meet and make connections with one another. From the Aryan Nations, Christian identity beliefs were able to make inroads not just among Klansmen and neo-Nazis, but into the American militia movement. Tanya Telfair-Sharp, a researcher with the Journal of Black Studies, was one of the first academics to document the spread of Christian identity outside of explicit fascists and into the murkier world of white patriots. She documented evidence of Christian identity pamphlets and underground literature spreading in small local gun and knife shows around the country from 1995 to 1999. It had, of course, been prominent in that world well before 1995. 
Christian identity's focus on the inevitable apocalyptic battle between Aryans and Satanic Jews meshed well with the apocalyptic fetishism of the survivalist and militia communities. As Tanya Sharp wrote, both groups were tied together by their belief that, quote, Reestablishment of white sovereignty depends on the use of organized aggression against the enemies of the true Christians, all non-whites and all non-Protestants. The first two letters of race holy war make up the battle cry, Rahoa, often used in identity speeches and publications. Christian identity literature focused on preparing for this apocalyptic battle, which allowed them to subtly recruit preppers by focusing on not explicitly ideological tasks, like acquiring dried food and weaponry, or building anti-personal traps in order to protect woodland compounds. Y2K was a goldmine for Christian identity. Fear of the year 2000 brought thousands of new Americans into the world of survivalist magazines, conventions, and online message boards. The worlds of the militia movement and the survivalist communities are, of course, closely tied into the world of conspiracy theories. In the late 1990s, guys like Alex Jones weren't preaching overt anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. You'd never catch him claiming that Jews are the spawn of Satan, for example. But Jones and his ilk were major proponents of the New World Order, the king of conspiracy theories throughout the 1990s and early 2000s. The NWO took different forms in the mouths of different conspiracy theorists. The most mainstream and least racist version of the story was that a secret world government of shadowy globalists was now slowly taking over the U.S. federal government and the governments of the world with the aim of enforcing total Orwellian control over the populace and massacring the vast majority of the world's population, particularly the Christians, for unclear reasons. The New World Order conspiracy was, again, not inherently anti-Semitic or racist, but in practice, most expressions of the theory wound up focusing on beliefs that a Jewish-led cabal of blacks, homosexuals, Hispanic immigrants, and liberals were trying to wipe out all straight white Christian Americans. Christian identity believers introduced the term Zionist Occupation Government, or ZOG, to the lexicon of American fringe politics. It took off like wildfire, entering the vocabularies of countless Americans on the far right who would not have considered calling themselves a Nazi. Christian identity beliefs just happened to mesh perfectly with every other extremist right-wing belief in the United States. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, tax protesting became more common. Christian identity fit in with that, arguing that paying taxes was really just paying for the demonic Jews to carry out their white genocide aims even faster. In 1997, William Luther Pierce, a former devotee of Rockwell and head of a Nazi group called the National Alliance, wrote this in a newsletter. The truth of the matter is that the New World Order people ultimately aim to create is a New World population of serfs for their global plantation, a homogenous population of coffee-colored serfs, a population of docile, predictable, and interchangeable serfs, and they definitely don't want any large reservoir of white people anywhere who might rebel. If you take the word white out, that sentiment matches almost word for word with any one of a thousand rants Alex Jones has gone on over the years. Under Rockwell, the American Nazi Party never numbered more than a few dozen real committed members, and its ideas failed to gain any kind of mainstream hold. His vulgar, racist cartoons and explicitly hateful, divisive rhetoric left a bad taste in most people's mouths. By the late 1990s, American fascists were no less hateful or violent than they had ever been, but their rhetoric had evolved to fit with the deep conspiratorial undercurrents sweeping through American society. Rockwell had shotgunned out hardcore racism, and as a result, he'd only been able to recruit a small number of the craziest assholes in America. New American fascism, blended with Christian identity, was capable of hiding out in more moderate spaces and luring in new believers without waving swastikas in their faces. Perhaps the most potent weapon Christian identity added to the arsenal of American fascism was the idea of white genocide. If you've spent much time studying neo-Nazis, you're aware of the significance of the number 14. 
It stands in for the 14 words. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. This is the invention of a guy named David Lane, a neo-Nazi bank robber and, for decades, a Christian identity believer. While Lane has moved on from Christian identity to some weird sort of bastardized Norse mythology ripoff, he and other Christian identity believers in the 80s and 90s were largely responsible for seeding the fear of white genocide into American fascism. From Tanya Sharp's article, quote, The identity literature is filled with negative images of white women caring for mixed-race babies. Race mixing in and of itself is a cause for organized and radical plan to separate the races. The National Vanguard magazine, a leading neo-Nazi publication, suggests that the cult of miscegenation, which, according to them, has proliferated over the past 30 years, has placed the white race on the precipice of biological extinction. Furthermore, they argue that only radical action will end the morality of death. The urge to protect white babies and ensure the future of the white race inspired Eric Rudolph to bomb an Alabama abortion clinic in 1996. Rudolph was a Christian identity believer, and his beliefs led him to bomb Atlanta's Olympic Park the same year, along with a gay nightclub. Rudolph spent more than a year hiding in the woods, eluding federal agents. He killed two and injured more than 120 people over his almost two-year bombing spree. He was not the last person moved to violence by this picture of a declining white race. Everyone listening to this will remember the 2019 Christchurch massacre, in which a fascist extremist murdered 50 Muslim worshippers at a New Zealand mosque. That shooter did not identify as a Nazi, and his manifesto lacked the expected anti-Semitic rambling, but he ranted at length about the threat of white genocide and what he called the Great Replacement. In between these two terrorists are dozens and dozens of other attacks with bits of Christian identity DNA coded into them. John Ernest, the Poway synagogue shooter, did not identify himself as a follower of Christian identity theology. But, according to Tablet Magazine, quote, The manifesto left behind by the Poway shooter reads like a hybrid of classical Christian anti-Semitism and contemporary white nationalism. He alternated within paragraphs, sometimes within sentences, from charging the Jews with a responsibility for the deaths of Jesus and the early Christian saints to declaring that Jews fund politicians and organizations who use mass immigration to displace the European race. The document is riddled with contradictions and is inarticulate even by white nationalist manifesto standards, as it moves between citing the Gospels and the killer's love of Frédéric Chopin with an explosive hatred towards Jews. But what it does evince, clearly, is a grounding in a form of anti-Semitism that's equally in debt to older Christian traditions and more modern secular variants centered on race and soil. Christian identity's influence in the fascist right is so deep and so well-woven that attacks on are carried out by terrorists who have been inspired by its tenets without ever learning the words Christian identity. You will be hearing about it regularly throughout the rest of this audiobook. I'll be sure to point out whenever the groups or individuals we discuss are Christian identity believers. But it almost isn't necessary. Christian identity is now just part of the furniture of American fascism. Chapter 3. The Apostle of Fascism If the international fascist movement has a single founding father, that man would be George Lincoln Rockwell. George took the ideologies and the hateful, vicious drive to exterminate and dominate that Adolf Hitler established, and he found a way to let these things function in a post-World War II era. After the war, fascism had lost its ability to attract a mass audience in the United States. It was seen as the ideology that had torn the world apart, because it was. People wouldn't show up to Nazi party meetings or pay dues or vote as fascists. And so Rockwell instead focused on generating a mass media attention. And so Rockwell instead focused on generating mass media attention with the few men he actually had at his disposal. 
He picketed civil rights marches, wielding signs covered in racial slurs and trusting in the police to defend him and his outnumbered crew. Even if he could only get nine or ten men to march with him, the rage and violence his signs inspired in counter-protesters were a guarantee of mass media coverage. He spoke at colleges for the same reason, knowing the protests and attacks caused by his presence would get him in the papers and ensure a steady stream of donations. Rockwell positioned himself as a free speech crusader, since arguing to the public about his desire for genocide would have seemed less appealing. These are all tactics modern fascists use today. We see them on display with men like Milo Yiannopoulos, Gavin McInnes and his Proud Boys, Joey Gibson and Patriot Prayer. Whether they know it or not, all these men crib from the playbook of George Lincoln Rockwell. But the fascist movement has evolved considerably since GLR's days. While many of the tools he pioneered are still incredibly effective today, his obsession with Nazi imagery, and the swastika in particular, was doomed for his hopes of ever creating a mass movement. He had started to realize this near the end of his career. In 1966, he came up with a brilliant slogan, White Power, which he had printed up on t-shirts and protest placards. He worked the phrase into his speeches in Chicago, where he arrived to counter-protest Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King was in the city to organize a protest that advocated for more public housing in traditionally white, and thus more affluent, parts of the city. For the first time in his career, Rockwell was able to strike a nerve with a large number of white Americans by focusing on their fear and resentment of black people. On August 6, 1966, Martin Luther King Jr. led a group of marchers through Gage Park. He was met by an enormous crowd of counter-protesters, organized and radicalized by George Lincoln Rockwell. They numbered more than 2,500. The crowd carried placards and banners and blazoned with Rockwell quotes, with Rockwell quotes like, Join the White Rebellion, and We worked hard for what we got. Thousands of furious voices shouted, White power! at King and his comrades. It marked one of the most violent and vicious receptions Dr. King ever received, and it also marked the high point of Rockwell's career. He was shot dead one year later. His dream of fomenting a white revolution, however, did not die with him. It lived on in his apostles, and chief among them was a man named William Luther Pierce. Pierce was born in Atlanta, Georgia, on September 11, 1933. His father, also William Luther Pierce, died in a car accident when he was eight years old. His mother had to scramble to support him and his younger brother. Leonard Zeskin, author of the crucial book Blood and Politics, suspects her background heavily influenced the fascist Pierce would later become. Quote, Marguerite, his mother's biological father, had run off when she was a child, leaving her fatherless until Marguerite's mother, Bill's grandmother, remarried. The new stepfather was a Jewish man from New York who had moved south, and Marguerite had a bitter relationship with him. William Pierce's story thus begins with his own absent father and his mother's unhappy tie to a Jewish stepfather. Marguerite moved about the South with her two young sons in tow. From these travails, William Pierce claimed he learned the virtues of self-discipline and the importance of delaying immediate gratification for a greater goal, values, he said, that became constant themes in his life. Pierce worked as a child to help his mom feed the family. He would later write that his difficult upbringing made him into the man he later became. Quote, I think, this ex I think this external discipline, this external control, being forced over a long period of time to do things I didn't want to do but that were necessary to do, helped me develop self-discipline. A lot of children these days never learn that. It's amazing how many adults can't do that. They can't stick at a job they don't want to do. Young Bill was clearly a brilliant boy. 
He did well in high school and went to a military academy in Bryan, Texas from 1949 to 1951. He earned a job there, cleaning the chemistry lab stockroom, and that job wound up stoking what would become a deep love of science. William went to college and then graduate school, where he studied to become a physicist. He worked at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena for a year and married Patricia Jones, who was also a brilliant mathematician. The couple moved to Boulder, and Pierce finished his doctorate in physics in 1962. His dissertation, which had something to do with nuclear dipole and electric quadrupole resonance, held no hints as to the sort of man he would become. Pierce got a job as the assistant professor of physics at Oregon State University in Corvallis. He and his wife had twins, and they settled into what seemed like it would be a perfectly dull, normal, healthy life. Pierce later wrote, Until I was 30 years old, I had hardly given a thought to politics, to race, or to social questions. That changed after he started working at Oregon State University. He started showing up at meetings of the John Birch Society. Now, you may not have heard of these guys, but they're one of the most important organizations in the history of the American radical right. Named after an American advisor in China who the group's founder, Robert Welsh, considered to be the first American who died fighting communists, the John Birch Society publications encouraged the U.S. to withdraw from the U.N., urged the impeachment of Chief Justice Earl Warren, accused former President Eisenhower of being a secret communist, and other similar baddiness. Here's a quote from one of their 1960 publications, The Blue Book, which William Pierce would certainly have read. Now if the danger from the communist conspiracy were all we had to worry about, it would be enough. But every thinking and informed man senses that, even as cunning and ruthless and de as determined as are the activists whom we call communists with a capital C, the conspiracy could never have reached its present extensiveness, and the gangsters at the head of it could never have reached their present power, unless there were tremendous weaknesses in the whole body of our civilization, weaknesses to make the advance of such a disease so rapid and its ravages so disastrous. Now, Robert Welch always denied any anti-Semitic leanings within the John Birch Society, but many people suspected that the weaknesses Welch saw in American society were, in fact, Jewish people. This is because John Birch Society propaganda was often incredibly similar to the Third Reich's own propaganda. The Nazis also felt like communism was brought down on societies by hidden actors who weakened the state enough for this disease to advance on it. The main difference between the two is that the Nazis named the Jews explicitly, and the John Birch Society did not. Pierce's primary issue with the John Birch Society is that it wasn't willing to discuss the Jews or explicitly racial issues. The Birchers were far right, but they didn't want anyone to mistake them for literal Nazis. Pierce later wrote, quote, I quickly found out that the two topics on which I wanted an intelligent discussion, race and Jews, were precisely the two topics Birch Society members were forbidden to discuss. William Pierce maintained a successful career as a physicist while he devoured more and more John Birch propaganda. In 1965, he left the university and got a job in Connecticut, working for the Pratt & Whitney Aircraft Plant as a senior research associate physicist. He made good money, and he did well, but his co-workers described him as a real loner who worked poorly with others and seemed almost unable to manage subordinates. Pierce's political leanings were kept more or less under wraps until the plant's workers went on strike. This face-to-face -face contact with what Pierce considered communism infuriated him so much that he tried to drive his car through a picket of a thousand Union men. This is perhaps not so surprising, since William Pierce had used his move to the East Coast as an opportunity to start visiting the American Nazi Party headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. William and George Lincoln Rockwell got along well, and Pierce found National Socialism a perfect fit with the beliefs he'd been developing since his move to Oregon. 
His only issue with Rockwell and the Nazis was, well, all the Nazi stuff. Pierce thought that the old-fashioned fascia uniforms and swastikas made them look like they were LARPers rather than serious revolutionaries. Obviously, he didn't use the term LARPer, but he accused them of Hollywood antics, which amounts to the same thing. In May of 1966, Pierce resigned from his factory job and moved his family to Virginia. His wife Patricia started teaching university math so she could support her husband in his, you know, Nazi efforts. Weirdly enough, Patricia wasn't a Nazi and later divorced her husband for his beliefs. But for a time, she was willing to, I don't know, humor him? She may have thought it was a phase he was going to get over eventually. Spoilers, he did not. In Blood and Politics, Zeskin writes, Over the decades, Pierce showed little emotional commitment to his two sons or multiple wives. Only his mother, Marguerite, and his Siamese cat successfully vied with his single-minded devotion to national socialist politics. During these early years, he began a small business selling guns, NS arms, and registered with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. His inventory included machine guns. The business folded after the passage of gun control legislation in 1968. One guess as to what NS Arms stood for. Now, Rockwell and Pierce embarked on a publishing venture together, putting out six issues of a Nazi magazine. But William refused to actually join the group until Rockwell changed its name from the American Nazi Party to the National Socialist White People's Party. When Rockwell was gunned down outside the parking lot of that laundromat, the movement he had spent his adult life crafting quickly began to fracture. Nazis were, then and now and always, catty bitches. GLR had kept his party together by sheer force of will, and even he hadn't done a great job of that, what with the whole getting murdered by one of his own men thing. Pierce stuck with the NSWPP, which retained the most members after Rockwell's death. For a while, he tried to take Rockwell's place, acting as the functional head of the party, writing all its propaganda and even speaking at university campuses. He did not have Rockwell's talent for drawing media attention. His only real success was saying that Nixon should be dragged out of his office and shot, which drew some coverage and got the FBI to start looking into him. During this period, Pierce became something of a mentor to a fellow named James Mason. Young James had joined Rockwell's American Nazi Party back in 1966, when he was 14. Two years later, at age 16, James got in trouble at school. He was disciplined by his principal, and in retaliation, started planning to go on a shooting spree and murder multiple members of the school's administration. Before carrying out his plan, he called the NSWPP's headquarters and wound up on the horn with William Pierce. The two talked it out, and Pierce convinced Mason to move to Virginia, work for the party, and learn how to run a printing machine instead of massacring his classmates. We'll be talking about Mason more in a later chapter. He would go on to write a book titled Siege, which provided the nuts and bolts inspiration for the terrorist group Atomwaffen. But I'm getting ahead of myself. As the 60s wound to a close, Pierce started to get frustrated with the NSWPP, mainly with the fact that, again, it was just too darn Nazi-y. He believed fascism needed an authentically American character and movement if it was going to have any chance of taking over in this country. Just dressing up as Nazis was not going to cut it. He quit the party in July of 1970 and published a paper titled Prospectus for a National Front, which he circulated around neo-Nazi circles. Here's how it opened. 
America today, and more specifically the American people, face the most serious and deadly menace which has arisen in their entire history. This menace far overshadows that posed by any war we have fought, any economic catastrophe through which we have passed, or any previous domestic strife which has torn us. For today we are faced not just with a threat to our territorial integrity, or to our material possessions, or to our way of life, or even to our own lives, but to something far dearer. Today, all that we ever have been and all that we ever might be, our race itself, is threatened with extinction. Pierce went on to complain that none of the existing radical right-wing organizations in the United States had the ability to turn into a, quote, large-scale revolutionary movement. Their long-established and unbroken record of failure is the best evidence of this fact, he wrote. He attacked the movement for being filled with overgrown children and said, in essence, we need to stop waiting around for a new Hitler to rise up and unify all of our fringe little groups. Instead, Pierce suggested America's fascists take a leaf out of communism's book and create a national front, a large umbrella organization that would combine and coordinate all the different right-wing groups and allow them to recruit people more easily, without the baggage of swastikas and clan robes. Towards this end, William Pierce established the National Alliance in 1974. We'll talk more about it throughout this book, but obviously the National Alliance didn't wind up being the trick to create a mass fascist movement in the United States. It was objectively more successful than Rockwell's American Nazi Party, drawing in thousands of members over the years and generating millions of dollars in income, but it proved no more capable of creating a popular revolution than the ANP had been. However, buried in Pierce's prospectus was a very important paragraph that contained a realization far more crucial than his national alliance would ever become. Quote, about the only good thing which can be said of all these little groups is that they do generate quite a flood of pamphlets, leaflets, bulletins, newsletters, and other printed materials which express some excellent sentiment, but even here it is largely an incestuous sort of affair in which the propaganda and the sentiment are circulated largely within the same vaguely defined movement in which they were born. Any real contact or rapport with the general population is absent, and this lack of contact with the public is not due simply to problems of distribution or a lack of access to the mass media. Most movement literature would fail to evoke a sympathetic response from the masses, even if it could be placed regularly in their hands. It is, for the most part, too esoteric, too introverted, and too kooky to strike a responsive chord among the general public. Pierce correctly understood that to really make progress, American fascism was going to have to craft propaganda that could infect the hearts and minds of normal white Americans. It would take years for Pierce to translate this insight into action, but when he did, the result would quite literally shake the world. First, however, came his dalliance with a sprightly gentleman named Willis Carto. Now, Carto is one of the very few individuals in this story whose commitment to fashdom precedes the activism of George Lincoln Rockwell. He started a monthly paper in 1955 called, revealingly in my opinion, Entitled Right, the Journal of Forward-Thinking American Nationalism. According to Zeskind, quote, it promoted many of the anti-communist, anti-Semitic, and segregationist ideas then circulating on the far right. In 1957, Carto first wrote openly about his idea to create something called the Liberty Lobby, which he promised would, quote, lock horns with the minority special interest pressure groups in order to support the needs of white people who, it must be said, were suffering mightily in the 1950s. Carto wrote that, quote, to the goal of political power, all else must temporarily be sacrificed. He spent his life embodying that creed. Now, Willis Carto was not an out-in-the-street bullhorn and placards activist, nor was he an armed revolutionary, clutching a rifle and calling for racial holy war. Instead, he sought to bring anti-communists and segregationists together and craft a thoroughly American fascist movement. 
1962, he started publishing a magazine, Western Destiny, dedicated to inculcating these ideas among the American right. He wrote about culture creators, white people, and their eternal battle against culture destroyers, black people. Tolerance, Carto wrote, can often be a culture-retarding and culture-distorting weakness. Western Destiny began to attract a dedicated audience of budding extremists, including a teenager named David Duke. It is possible that Willis Cardo is the man who red-pilled Duke. Throughout the 1960s, William Pierce, as William Pierce was coming up with his idea for a national front, Willis Carto built the Liberty Lobby into a moderately large mailing list for the distribution of far-right, but not openly fascist, propaganda. He latched on to the 1968 presidential bid of a fellow named George Wallace. The 45th governor of Alabama, Wallace was one of the leading voices against the civil rights movement. His most famous line is probably this. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod the earth, I draw a line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. One guess as to what color of people Wallace thought were the greatest on earth. So, you can see why George Wallace would appeal to a guy like Willis Carto. Carto turned the Liberty Lobby towards the cause of getting Wallace elected president. He was, of course, unsuccessful in this goal, but the campaign was an incredible success for the Liberty Lobby. By its end, they'd become the home for almost but not quite Nazi politics in the United States. Their newsletter, The Liberty Letter, had 170,000 subscribers. When Wallace's campaign fell apart, Carto was able to swoop in and acquire a mailing list with the names of another 230,000 people, members of a group called Youth for Wallace. Willis felt that the failure of George Wallace to win the presidency was no good reason to let the movement of young fascists he'd inspired go to waste. Under Carto, Youth for Wallace was molded into the National Youth Alliance, according to Zeskin's Blood and Politics. Quote, In the subsequent months, the National Youth Alliance sponsored several regional meetings, including a January 1969 event at Conley's Motor Hotel in Monroeville, outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was here that the youth organization first began to unravel. Several officers in the new group objected to the content and tenor of the meeting, and an attendant social at a supporter's home. They claimed that the affair was awash in Nazi heraldry, including women who wore swastika jewelry and men who sang the Horst Wessel Lied, a Nazi party anthem from the 1930s. The host and MC promoted a new booklet by Carto's West Coast Enterprise, Noontide Press, Myth of the Six Million. It argued that the Nazi genocide was a figment of the Jewish imagination. One of the formal presentations was, en was entitled Plato the Fascist. So, Cardo had revealed his power level too quickly, and the National Youth Alliance quickly alienated the majority of its potential membership. These people may not have felt black and white folks should use the same water fountains, but they weren't about to identify themselves as Nazis. Most of them probably had parents who'd fought the Nazis. But Carto's work had attracted some new blood, William Pierce, and a sizable herd of national socialists. They started hovering around the Liberty Lobby like flies on the rotting corpse of George Wallace's presidential ambitions. They worked together for a while, but it was an acrimonious pairing, and the straight-up national socialists conflicted with Carto's old guard, who were fine basically towing the Nazi line, but not fine actually identifying as Nazis. Carto and Pierce wound up breaking apart, and after a complex series of bureaucratic battles I don't care to recount, Pierce wound up reincorporating the National Youth Alliance in Virginia in October of 1970. Carto accused Pierce of stealing the Liberty Lobby's mailing list, which was probably true. Pierce accused Carto of embezzling $55,000 from his own organization, which was also probably true. Carto accused Pierce's faction, who were, again, literal Nazis, of being Zionists. Pierce responded by calling Carto swarthy, which was racist code for not white enough. 
The fighting between Pierce and Carto just underscored how unsuccessful Pierce's efforts to build a national front had been. His plan had been to start by recruiting more students, starting in the D.C. area, but this was a miserable failure. When he was invited to speak at George Washington University for some reason in February of 1972, Pierce couldn't gather more than two dozen students. Anti-fascists showed up and threw raw eggs at him and his men. I should note that in the immediate wake of the Christchurch shooting, a far-right Australian politician, Senator Fraser Anning, blamed the massacre on, quote, an immigration program which allowed Muslim fanatics to migrate to New Zealand in the first place. Shortly thereafter, a heroic teenager hit him in the head with an egg. $70,000 was raised on a GoFundMe for the boy's defense, which he donated instead to the victims of the Christchurch shooting. I write a lot in this book about all the historical linkages between old-school and modern fascists, but let us also acknowledge that anti-fascists have their own long-standing traditions, and one of them is apparently egging. Anyway, on February 26, 1974, William Pierce decided to revamp the National Youth Alliance into a new organization, the National Alliance, which he incorporated in Virginia. He continued to publish the organization's newsletter, Attack! with an exclamation point, which included guides for how to bomb movie theaters and articles on which guns would work best in urban uprisings. It was the sort of fair Nazi newsletters had always focused on. But the next year, in January of 1975, Pierce introduced his first real innovation into the annals of right-wing terror, a book titled The Turner Diaries. Published in sections across several issues of Attack, the book is presented as a series of diary entries from a revolutionary. You might compare it to a Nazi answer to A Handmaid's Tale. The Turner Diaries were meant to take place in a near-future America in which a Jewish-dominated liberal government had taken over and forcibly instituted such horrors as multiculturalism and gun control. Pierce presents those things from a Nazi point of view, of course, so multiculturalism is presented as feral, animalistic black people raping white women at will, and gun control is portrayed as the forcible confiscation of all privately owned firearms. There are equality police in this book, to give you an idea of its tenor. The hero, Earl Turner, is a normal white man who gets swept up in a secret terrorist organization led by a group called The Order, who organized their insurgency in a series of small cells to carry out vicious terrorist attacks, including the bombing of an FBI headquarters. The goal of these attacks is to destabilize the American government and provoke a vicious race war. The Order funds its operations by robbing banks and armored cars, which allow them to buy weapons and explosives to carry out more attacks and, gradually, to tip the country into a nightmare. The book launched a number of concepts into the fascist mindset, not the least of which is the idea of the day of the rope. I'm going to quote now from the Turner Diaries, and a section later in the book. Quote, Today has been the day of the rope, a grim and bloody day, but an unavoidable one. Today, Tonight, from tens of thousands of lampposts, power poles, and trees throughout this vast metropolitan area, the grisly forms hang. In the lighted streets, one sees them everywhere. Even the street signs at intersections have been pressed into service, and at practically every street corner I passed this evening on my way to HQ, there was a dangling corpse, four at every intersection. Hanging from a single overpass only about a mile from here is a group of about 30, each with an identical placard around its neck bearing the printed legend, I Betrayed My Race. Two or three of that group have been decked out in academic robes before they were strung up, and the whole batch are apparently faculty members from the nearby UCLA campus. The first thing I saw in the moonlight was the placard with the legend in large block letters, I defiled my race. Above the placard leered the horribly bloated, purplish face of a young woman, her eyes wide open and bulging, her mouth agape. Finally, I can make out the thin vertical line of rope disappearing into the branches above. Apparently, the rope had slipped a bit, and the branch to which it was tied had sagged until the woman's feet were resting on the pavement, giving the uncanny appearance of a corpse standing upright of its own volition. 
I shuddered and quickly went on my way. There are many thousands of hanging female corpses like that in this city tonight, all wearing identical placards around their necks. They are the white women who are married to or living with blacks, with Jews, or with other non-white males. Earl Turner dies in the book, carrying out a suicidal but successful assault on the Pentagon, but the order is victorious in the end. The book is essentially framed as a historical document, with researchers from Earl's future commenting on it. They note that after the U.S. was purged of all non-white people, the same thing was done to the rest of the planet, using a series of nuclear and chemical weapons attacks to cleanse Asia. It's super fucked up! But it took off like gangbusters among the American far right, and was eventually published as a book, selling as many as 500,000 copies. The Turner Diaries did not sell the traditional way, in like Barnes and Nobles or whatever. Instead, it proliferated virally on the gun show circuit, at survivalist conventions, and in tiny small-town shops owned by racists. 500,000 copies is a substantial success, even by mainstream publishing standards. It's not an earth-shattering book, but, you know, it's still really good sales. I found a good article in The Atlantic by J.M. Berger, who authored a scholarly papal titled The Turner Legacy. It notes... The Turner Diaries is notable for its lack of ideological persuasion. At one point in the novel, its protagonist, Earl Turner, is given a book to read. Turner claims the book perfectly explains the reasons for white supremacy and the justification of all the Order's actions. Importantly, this magical tome's contents are never specified. Although the novel's epilogue broadly hints at a Nazi orientation, the book never explicitly identifies the Order with a specific movement. Due in part to Pierce's desire to appeal to normal people, as well as the novel's limited circulation among neo-Nazis, Turner assumes its readers are already racist and do not need to be recruited to that mindset. The abandonment of why empowers a single narrative focus on what and how, the necessity of immediate violent action and concrete suggestions about how to go about it. This is part of why the book has so often been associated with violence and terrorism. The Turner Diaries would go on to become probably the most influential single piece of fascist propaganda since Mein Kampf. It's inspired more than 200 murders since its publication, but it's also inspired a hell of a lot more than just murder. The Turner Diaries became the ideological underpinning of a vicious American insurgency, which eventually led to hundreds and hundreds of armed men around the country working actively towards the establishment of a white supremacist state. The Turner Diaries also inspired a whole genre of fascist and quasi-fascist propaganda books, written to the same rubric, but reining in on the racism just a little bit in order to avoid freaking out the normies. In 1996, John Ross published Unintended Consequences, a novel that is best described as The Turner Diaries, but all the racism is whispered. The cover of the copy I have features a burning copy of the Constitution with a black-clad cop attempting to sexually assault Lady Justice in front of it. Its main innovation from the Turner Diaries was to switch the focus of its revolutionaries away from race war and towards just gun rights. The plot focuses around a man, Henry Bowman, who winds up being framed by the ATF for some stupid reason related to their desire to take all of America's guns. He kills most of the ATF agents who come for him, and then brutally tortures one who he captures. Bowman and a small group of gun rights advocates then carry out a terrorist campaign, horribly murdering gun control advocates around the nation until the president repeals all gun control laws. Alex Jones has mentioned multiple times on InfoWars that Unintended Consequences is one of his favorite books. In more recent years, a guy named Matt Bracken has written a whole series of books, starting with Enemies Foreign and Domestic. Like Unintended Consequences, his first book is basically Turner Diaries with Less Racism. The liberal government creates a false flag mass shooting to take away everyone's guns. The ATF is the bad guy, and brave patriots beat them via terrorism. Bracken's innovation was to have the cast of his books include numerous non-white people. The idea seems to be that, if most of the characters aren't white, then the book can't be racist. 
On an unrelated note, the second book in the series is Domestic Enemies, The Reconquista. Its plot is that the evil liberals orchestrate an invasion of Mexicans with the goal of having them ban English in the Southwest and secede from the United States. J.M. Berger, this time writing for the Daily Beast, identified some similarities between Bracken's third book and the Turner Diaries. Quote, After an earthquake demolishes Memphis, black refugees turn into a seething mob of gang rapists and cannibals, characterizations that feature memorably in the Turner Diaries, while urban blacks loot a path from Baltimore to Washington, D.C., where they demand and receive a new socialist constitution engineered by a thinly veiled caricature of President Obama. Their narrative disclaimers continue. One character condemns white racist killings in the chaos after the quake, and a battle-weary white racist girl near the end of the book accepts the hand of comfort offered by a black army medic. But these and other moments of individual race grace are hard-pressed to counterweight the vivid, lengthy depiction of African Americans en masse as cannibal rapists directly responsible for destroying America's constitution. In writing the Turner Diaries, William Pierce ignited a movement within the far right that is still very much present and relevant today. The next chapter will discuss, in depth, the generation of terrorists who were inspired by his words to take horrifying, bloody action. Like Christian identity, the Turner Diaries have influenced many people who may never have even read the book. In his manifesto, the Christchurch mosque shooter wrote about his hope that his attack would spark renewed calls for gun control in the United States, because he believed this would lead inevitably to a new civil war. The Poway synagogue shooter repeated the same desire. William Pierce died in 2002, but his ideas live and kill to this day. The struggle between William Pierce and Willis Carto would prove to be a microcosm of a larger struggle within the fascist right itself. On Carto's side are the mainstreamers. Their goal is to gain political power by pushing the Overton win- window further and further right and convincing more and more of their fellow Americans to adopt hardcore fascist politics. Carto supported political parties and candidates, most notably David Duke's successful run for the Louisiana State Senate as a Republican and unsuccessful run for governor. He was also a backer of Pat Buchanan. Carto and other mainstreamers believe that the majority of white Americans can be converted to their political ideals, so gaining power is just a matter of properly propagandizing to their fellow white people. William Pierce, on the other hand, was a vanguardist. Vanguardists believe that politics is hopeless, and the only way for their side to win is to, as in the Turner Diaries, form small, dedicated groups and basically bring on the collapse of society in order to take control. George Lincoln Rockwell himself is hard to pin down. He had elements of both mainstreamer and vanguardist in his writings and in his activism. But his most direct descendants, men like William Pierce and James Mason, became two of the most influential minds in the vanguardist movement. And the vanguardist movement is the chunk of the white supremacist movement that we are focusing on in this audiobook. Because in the late 1970s, a new wave of fascists and neo-Nazis began to rise. For more than a decade, they would build a potent insurgency, armed with missiles, machine guns, and bombs, utterly dedicated to a single dire mission, turning the Turner Diaries into reality. <laughs>